Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host and my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, dad? I'm good. Are you going to behave yourself today? No. (laughs) (laughs) And we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. By the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars and some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Really does help the rankings and um, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And without further ado, I would love to introduce my friend Harrison Leonard. Harrison is the head of grants and trusts at Penny Braun in the UK, which is a national charity funded by public donations that provides free integrative care to cancer patients. So Harrison is an expat living, can I, is that the right term, an expat? Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, living in the UK, our resident millennial and uh, just a really interesting dude. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, on this episode, Harrison, how are you doing, first of all? I'm okay, man. You made Good. a terrible mistake inviting me here. Oh, I did, I did, I'm gonna, <laughs> and I'm really gonna regret it. I'm already You are, it. you really will. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so on this episode, we'll be discussing the theological and political evolution of millennial, AKA Harrison. Ronnie will be asking what it means to be culturally a Christian and culturally a Jew. Harrison will be thrusting us into the treacherous terrain of moral trade-offs between faith principles and political expediency slash access to power. And if we have time, I'll be bringing up the two recent electing election-related cases that were brought before the Supreme Court. So thanks for coming in, Harrison. Thanks for uh, joining us, Pops. Uh, everybody doing all right today? We're doing just yeah. fine. Good, 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 good. Well, why don't we just dive right in? Harrison, you've had a really um, a long journey, um, both in terms of your political and your theological trajectory. Um, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and kind of this uh, a bit about the starting point for um, for those broad categories, political and theological. Uh, well, thanks guys for having me on. Um, yeah, so one thing that's important to know about me in order to contextualize my religious upbringing is that I, I was born Jewish. Both of my parents were Jewish. Uh, my mother was, you know, come, came from a relatively secular cultural Jewish home. Uh, my father came from a more conservative Jewish upbringing. My father died when he was 33. I was um, about 10 and a half months old. Um, the man that my mother remarried, who I know as dad as well, I'm sort of fortunate to have two dads in, in a way, um, Scott adopted me uh, when I was you know, a few years old. Um, Scott is not Jewish. He was a Christian. And so I grew up sort of with both traditions. 
that eventually became sort of syncretized uh, when we found a messianic congregation um, in the suburbs of Los Angeles, which we began attending from, I think I was about five years old or so. So right away, I was sort of at once in two camps and in neither <laughs> is the way that I think of it now. I've had to do a lot of sort of like soul searching and reflecting and a bit of therapy too, to kind of like work through the impact that that had on me. Um, but I grew up with a love and, a, and an appreciation for, for both traditions. And obviously from my vantage point growing up, both of them made sense together because obviously like, uh, anyone who's taken the time to read even a little bit about the rise of early Christianity understands that uh, it came out of, it was really a sect of Second Temple Judaism, and then it sort of, you know, split apart a couple hundred, few hundred years um, after the death of, of Jesus. So I grew up ingratiated in that sort of um, historical understanding of the faith. Um, so for me, it didn't seem strange that the two could be held or embraced together. I learned the hard way that that wasn't the case uh, for many normative Jews and also a lot of Christians. Um, on the Jewish side, you know, I was for the most part, I think, embraced by my extended family for the for the um, the religious practices that we observed in my family. I found that that wasn't the case the further outside of the family we got. So for example, my biological father's, um, some of his closest friends who were my godparents declined an invitation to my bar mitzvah when I was heading into my 13th birthday because they felt that uh, having any kind of a messianic sort of presence at my bar mitzvah was basically a, a betrayal of, of Judaism and I guess somehow an insult to my father or whatever. So these are the kind of lessons that I learned as like a 12 year old, which really like is kind of bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah. like kids shouldn't have to um, experience what is at bottom discrimination, uh, you know, of any sort. Um, and that was my experience of discrimination. And then uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not pretending that it was uh, as bad as a lot of like the racial and sexual discrimination experienced by other people, but it did give me a, a sense early on of what it feels like to be other. Um, that's, that's for certain. Right. That, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Just to contextualize where your extended family may have been coming from. Jews of my generation, especially first generation Jews in America. Um, I'm a first generation American. Growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust feels a certain responsibility as a Jew to perpetuate the race or perpetuate the, the people. And Messianic Jews, Jews who leave Judaism and accept Jesus are um, looked upon by many people of my generation exactly the way you describe them, but there's a reason for it. They feel guilty when their children leave traditional Judaism, that they're not fulfilling their mission in the world, which is to perpetuate Judaism. Not Messianic Judaism, but Judaism. Yes, and I, and I agree with you, and I think obviously in the coming 
minutes will will discuss obviously there's a lot that has changed for me since since my upbringing both in terms of my own spiritual identity, um, my observations, quite frankly, about things, movements like Messianic Judaism. With that caveat and the understanding that, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to explore it it, uh, in just a bit. I sort of kind of agree with that. And I kind of understand where Jews of, you know, my grandparents' generation would have been coming from uh, to a point. I think that there's it's, you know, a few, few weeks ago, you guys had Tommy Gibbons, yeah. uh, as a guest on your show, which I obviously was very pleased to listen to. And Tommy's actually written a little bit about this. And I think like the, um, he and I have had a couple of conversations in the past about, it. I think one of my takeaways, um, is that Jews and Christians have been basically trying to build up their traditions on the backs of one another for a long time now. And that has been especially true of, Christians building up their sense of identity on the backs of Jews. And so it's not surprising that uh, Jewish people would be particularly sensitive to any sense of either betrayal or like a, like a wolf in sheep's clothing sort of a thing, because that is fundamentally, I think one of the, one of the biggest concerns I have about Messianic Judaism as a movement today is that it can be seen as disrespectful to normative Jews. And if we who are Jewish, even you know, regardless of like what particular faith practice we have, if we care about the feelings uh, and the experiences of members of our family, we should care about how we present ourselves. And actually for Christians who want to teach or preach the good news of Jesus to Jews, they should care about that too. So for me, that's like sort of a separate discussion from the, the sort of logical and theological validity of embracing the two together. That I think, um, if, if we can temporarily set aside without obviously forgetting the incredible pain and injustices that have been uh, done to Jews by people who have claimed the mantle of Jesus and just talk about the history, the theological positions, um, the, the way in which Jews of the second temple period understood messianism, the way in which um, both traditions, you know, sort of um, self-identified in the, in the centuries after Jesus. That's a lot more muddied for me. And it ought to be for anyone who like can study history <laughs> it's, you know, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, and this extends beyond faith matters and extends to pretty much every area of my life, including politics. The more that I learn about any subject, the less that I feel that I know with certainty. I think that's quite a healthy thing. And so like, from look, I can't, I'm not, I'm not here to convince anyone to agree with me. I can only tell you what my experience has been, which is that the more that I've learned and understood about Second Temple Judaism, the rise of early Christianity, the split that occurred, and how the traditions have developed since then, the more that I'm convinced that just as like a personal matter of faith, if you want to hold those two together, I've got no problem with it. But functionally, practically, I can completely understand why Jews would balk at it. I think normative Jews have every good reason to do so. And as I say, I think that there's there's something to be said for avoiding that kind of language 
um, or self-identification with Jews because it's disrespectful. You know, for, for a Jew who's invited to a Messianic synagogue and comes in and most of the people are Gentile and maybe they're worshiping on a Sunday and they're singing songs about Jesus. It, it feels like a, I don't know. I don't know, like a pyramid scheme or something. It feels like a con. And um, I know I felt that way. I, w- I was brought in to a couple of those services. And um, e- even after having become a Christian, I still felt that way. I, I felt like that I was sort of tricked into something. Um, and then as I sat there, because I still have such deep roots in a non-Christian Jewish heritage, I felt that some of, it was almost like, it wasn't even like real Judaism in a way. It was, and and some non-Christian Jews might be listening to this and saying, well, no, it's not real Judaism if you have the Jesus thing. But, you know, even try, in, even in an earnest attempt to honor the Jewish heritage, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel that way. It, it felt more like they were hijacking some symbols and lingo. Yeah. Yeah. So actually at this point, it's worth noting one important thing that's just specific to my personal experience of this. So there is, if you will, small M, small J messianic Judaism, which is to say people who were born Jewish, who embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, right? So there's the, and then there's Messianic Judaism with a capital M and a capital J, which is like basically like a conglomeration of specific organizations yeah. who are proselytizing. I did not grow up with the latter. Right. So I went to what I, I guess like the shorthand language is to say it was a Messianic Jewish congregation. We met on a Sunday. The, the congregational leader called himself a pastor. Yeah. He was Jewish, born right. Jewish, you know, but he called himself a pastor. He didn't try to pretend that he was a rabbi, you know, that had attended rabbinical school. He went to, I think, Talbot uh, or um, no, it wasn't Talbot. It was Dallas Theological, I believe. And so I actually, that was the other like nuance for me is that I grew up calling myself a Messianic Jew because that's what we call ourselves and it's, and it's all I knew. And then it wasn't until I was about 21 when that congregational leader stepped down from his leadership position. And the person that took over was a Messianic Jew, the capital M and a capital J. And he was, um, you know, a, uh, I guess a missionary with chosen people ministries. And then I began to, you know, they made the decision to move to Saturdays to move their worship to Saturdays. They started introducing much more of the liturgy yeah. uh, into the beginning of the services. There was like dance, like Israeli, I don't know, dancing or whatever. And ironically for me, I left the congregation at that point because it began to feel more farcical and less Jewish yeah. So I guess like I can't convince Ronnie or, you know, maybe somebody like Ronnie that what I grew up with was it, it certainly wasn't Judaism. I don't think it pretended to be Judaism. I think what my experience was, was that we did certain Jewish things because we're Jews. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> yeah. it, it flowed out. But the, but within that, there was no pretending to copy or mimic. Right. Uh- yeah, yeah, I'm most at ease when we 
are lighting Hanukkah candles because we're lighting Hanukkah candles. I don't think there's anything that betrays yeah. my, you know, theological convictions in, you know, uh, the messiahship of Jesus by honoring um, Hanukkah or Purim or Passover or all, all the different holidays that we celebrate as a family. And even, you know, even the theological um, and scriptural rootedness, at least in Purim and Passover, you know, honoring that without superimposing, you know, a Christian tradition that, that, that it always feels maybe it's just a strain of a bigger thing. And, and, and I don't know if it's just, you know, the last 25, 30 years, or if it's a continuation of something, it's probably a continuation of something bigger, you know, uh, some would, would say it's a continuation going back to colonialism and even before that. And, but w- what it is that I'm referring to is this posture of like, and I'm sure you felt this too, of, um, well, to the degree that you agree with us, um, you're right. Um, but when you, eventually you'll either be right or and be agreeing with us, or, or you'll be wrong. It's sort of like this um, patronizing, like, oh, that's cute that you still believe that the Pharisees were, you know, great scholars and, you know, leaders and stuff. They were really just legalists, you know, and yeah. until you come to that conclusion and uh, judgment, you're going to be wrong until that time. You know, it's, it's, I, I can't quite describe, I don't know if I'm describing it well, but that's, I always got that vibe. It was like, yeah, you know, it's it's cute that all these people like think these different things. Hopefully they'll agree with us eventually. And, you know, maybe putting a better light on it. It's like uh, uh, they genuinely feel um, a, a mission, you know, as part of evangelism. And there's a genuine feeling of that. But it, it often comes across of like everybody else is wrong. Um, and we're just going to have to convince them to agree with us because that's what God told us. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I don't know if it's... Um... I've, I've always had, I think, something of a, uh, of a natural aversion to that. I actually, so a few years ago, I was working for uh, a very large um, Anglican church in South Kensington, which is quite a, a gorgeous, affluent sort of uh, neighborhood in, in West London. Uh, I'm aware we're jumping around a little bit here. Yeah, we'll, right. I probably have to backfill, but that's, that's fine. Um, and it was a charismatic Pentecostal church. I was just, I was doing fundraising research. It wasn't Anglican. It was Pentecostal. It's Anglican, but it's charismatic. So, so it's not Pentecostal. Well, there's probably differences between charismatic Christianity and Pentecostalism, but the but the expression, the emphasis on uh, spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all that sort of thing is similar. So it was, I guess the reason why I threw the word Pentecostal in is because I'm aware that we've got a, uh, we've got an audience that will be listening on both continents. So I'm just mindful that um, if I say charismatic here, it may have slightly different connotations there in, in, in the United States. It was very difficult for me. It was a lovely place to work, gorgeous, like surroundings. The job was fine. I had a lot of great friends, but there were, because it was a church, like we had staff meetings every Tuesday morning where there was prayer and worship. And it was very difficult for me emotionally. I've always been, since I was a kid, I went away once to a, to a sleepaway camp for the weekend, a Christian camp with my best friend. And on the last night, 
of the camp, there was like a worship service where people started speaking in tongues and I ran out <laughs> of the room and hid in the snow because I was like, what the fuck was that? Like, even though I grew up, even though I grew up in the, you know, in, in the church, like in a Christian community, I still was like very much put off by it. <laughs> and so I started having PTSD, you know, when I started working for this Anglican church and people started speaking in tongues, I was like, what the hell is this? And it really sent me through a massive, massive crisis of faith because I just didn't believe it. I just didn't believe that this was something of God. Do you know what I mean? That like somehow God was sort of like wiping away all the neurons firing and just sort of yeah. like speaking directly in and the stuff was, I just couldn't be brought to believe it. And I, this is the way that I am, the way my mind works, the way I think. I spent years, years studying it, reading about it, trying to deeply understand like both skeptics and also people who are true believers to say like, is because it was not something I've ever experienced, right? So if you're watching people put on like a spiritual display and it seems like they have some unique access to God that you've never experienced, it bring it for some people, including for me, it brings a lot of doubt, a lot of doubt creeps in because you're like, well, either I don't really have the in with the big guy, you know, because like I'm not experiencing this or they're full of shit and all of this is shit. Yeah. <laughs> so it really sent me through like a crisis of faith. But anyways, the as reason why I'm telling, yeah, sorry, go on. As a complete outsider to Messianic yeah. Judaism. I should clarify, Ronnie, this was not, this was not Messianic Judaism. No, no, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that for a very, very long time, my attitude was Messianic Jews are both pretending to be Jewish and pretending to be Christian. There's yeah. nothing authentic about something called Messianic Judaism. I have a much different attitude now, but you know, I'm much less judgmental, more accepting now that I have a Christian son. And, and the other issue that struck me while you were talking, Harrison, is that you went from Messianic experience, Messianic Jewish experience, and the place I met you at wasn't much later than when you were 24 was at what I would view as an extraordinarily right-wing, Bible-thumping, uh, Baptist church, oh, mega-church. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask about that because I, I wouldn't describe yeah. you that way, but I think it's fair to say in your late teens and early 20s to describe you as conservative theologically Christian and conservative politically as well. And you're, you're not that anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, a couple of points. When, I, when we left the, the Messianic congregation, I sort of just fell into the big Baptist megachurch because it was the one that was local and my best friends went there and I needed a place to go. So I just started going and then kind of never left for, until I left, you know, but it wasn't like I didn't, I didn't leave and then make a concerted effort to shop around for a new place house of worship. I just took a couple of weeks off and said, I need to go somewhere. I went with my friends and then I just kind of found myself there. So that's how you met me. There wasn't really a, there wasn't much of an intention, I would say, behind choosing that church over any other. Um, okay. So let me back up for a second and tell you guys how I grew up politically, because it then kind of answers Corey's question and we can kind of mold the, the theological and the political together. So 
my my immediate family was you know fairly standard fare moderate conservative Republican California by California standards, which probably put us, you know, a little bit to the left of maybe America's average Republican communist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Right. You believe in immigration. Um, so, so we, so that's how I grew up. I didn't grow up particularly political. So some of the values I grew up with my, my dad, for example, was very much, I I was taught to to grow up with great respect for the presidency, regardless of who the president was. I didn't grow up with any, we didn't really talk about politics much in my home. Um, Some of my extended Jewish family were Democrats. And there was always, I can remember during the 2000 election, I can remember them talking about how pissed off they were that Al Gore lost and being like, sort of like feeling somehow attacked by that. Hmm. (laughs) Um, But uh, the other thing is like, so I've always really loved history, right? Like when I was six or seven years old, my, my grandfather gave me a, a packet of U.S. president flashcards, which I memorized in order immediately. And I've still never forgotten them. You know, like at the, at the time it was through Bill Clinton had just been inaugurated. And I grew up with like a great love of American presidential history. A few years later, I got at the time, it it must have been groundbreaking, right? It was like mid to late 90s, maybe 97, uh, an Encyclopedia Britannica CD-ROM, which had like video clips of JFK's inaugural address and FDR's inaugural address, which I memorized and would recite, you know. So I grew up with a great love of American presidential history in particular, and Sometimes on the drive home from school, my mom would have talk radio on. So I started absorbing conservative political opinions and kind of digesting that and it ruminated. And then around 2003 or so, the election started gearing up, all the, pri- the primaries leading up to the 20, 2004 election between Bush and Kerry. And I sort of got swept up in the horse race of it. So I would have been 17 at the time. And that is what got me really interested in American politics. And there wasn't a whole lot of self-reflection about whether or not I agreed with the Republican platform. It was sort of like my, my family's Republican. We're supporting George W. Bush for reelection. I loved watching the Democratic horse. I mean, to the point where I was watching like all of the proceedings of the Democratic National Convention that year like from beginning to end for all three or four days. I watched Barack Obama's keynote address live. And I said to my mom, that guy's going to be president of the United States one day. Wow. (laughs) And I was very right. It was one of my best uh, political predictions as a a young guy. Um, I remember my brother said the same thing. He he watched the convention and he said, there's this guy, uh, state, I yeah. think he was state senator at that time. Or he was, was state senator and he was aspiring to yeah. uh, U.S. Ed, senator. From you remember Illinois, that, Dad? Yeah. Eddie pointed it out. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, so so I got really interested and involved. I joined the Young Republicans group at Valencia High School uh, where, where I was going to school. You know, I like participated in a school debate, which I, I <laughs> it's really funny looking back now because I went on some absolute crap website, like, you know, www. 
patriotfreedom.biz or whatever. <laughs> and I found some facts about how 9-11 was linked to Iraq. And it was all like completely crap discredited information. But at the time I didn't possess the critical thinking skills to like ignore it. And I, I recited a bunch of these factoids, you know, about whoever, Zarqawi and Hussein and bin Laden. And, and like the, my democratic counterpart in the school debate we did was frozen into silence because he had no response because like I was presenting information that was so out of the bounds of reality, which yeah. by the way, there's a great foreshadowing. I don't know if you've noticed in current events that well, we're experiencing something of the same. We'll, so, we'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. talk about that, but we're, yeah, we're yeah, you know, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyways, um, but like, as I started learning more about politics, I started developing some independent views yeah. on specific issues and it reached the point. So that was around 2004. So by 2007, I was kind of like a Ron Paul guy. I remember and after. Yeah. And after John McCain lost, I bought a handgun and registered as a libertarian because I basically moved to the left on matters of war and peace and on social issues. But I was still very much like a hardcore conservative on sort of fiscal, you know, economic policy. Okay. So I started identifying as libertarian. I became a dues paying member of the libertarian party that lasted a few years. And then I was invited, I was like kind of considering for fun, like making a run for office as a libertarian, just to kind of like have a, have an experience. And I went to a Hollywood meeting of the libertarian, like the local libertarian chapter and sat down to dinner with some local folks and they started making anti-Semitic Oh. comments almost wow. immediately now the, the the context like just to you may or may not be aware that ron paul has a lot of people had a lot of people in his sort of social circles that were known for being bigots and racists <laughs> um people people who had advised him in the decades that he you know worked in in congress and this was stuff i was aware of having been a, a foot soldier in the Ron Paul revolution. Yeah. But I rationalized it and justified it and said, yeah, there may have been a couple of bad apples around him, but Ron Paul himself was always a great guy. It was sort of like, it was very much strong man hero worship in the way that you quite frankly see sometimes with Bernie and with Trump today, kind of like this real worship of the person, you know, like this was, this was like a decade now prior yeah. But even back then, Ron Paul's biggest fans were pu putting up like um, super cuts of him saying the same thing in 1987 that he said in 2007. And this is evidence of his consistency. And this is worthy of our admiration. You see the same kind of stuff with Bernie, Bernie today. Um, so even though the politics are different, the hero worship is the same, yeah. which was one of the things that actually made me a bit skeptical of Bernie's rise in 2016 because of my own experience in the Ron Paul movement. Anyhow, so I was aware of all this stuff kind of milling in the background, you know, like Ron Paul's sort of circles. And I sort of said, you know, yeah, there's probably some bad apples in the libertarian movement, but there's bad apples in every movement. And I trust Ron Paul. He's a wonderful man and all this. And then I went to that meeting in Hollywood and it sort of shook me awake. Um, and I was like, this is fucking wrong. Like yeah. there's something rotten at the heart of libertarianism if this is what it produces and if this is seen as okay enough that the leadership isn't going to speak up and condemn it. 
you know? Yeah. So I left, I left the Libertarian Party and tried going back to the Republican Party briefly, trying to think like, well, maybe uh, the major parties are the vehicles through which we affect change in the political system. Right. Um, so even, you know, there may be democratic socialist movements on the left, libertarian movements on the right, but the two major parties are the vehicles by which we sort of act as, as pressure, pressure groups. So just, just out of curiosity, did you yeah. have hope even for a split second that the Tea Party might have been that movement within the Republican Party that could have represented or balanced some of those things out for you? To, so to the best of my recollection, I never held out – I never had a great amount of respect for the Tea Party movement, but I, but I had seen a number of people that at the time I'd considered decent libertarians. Yeah rise to positions of political power off the back of the Tea Party movement. So I guess I saw it as a convenient vehicle, but I myself was never caught up in it. Because you have to understand, for a lot of libertarians, at, at least at that time, folks like Sarah Palin, were, who kind of, you know, you associate her with being maybe one stupid. of the, well, yes, very stupid, <laughs> but also stupid. one of the, yeah, but also kind of one of the I mean maybe the central figures of the early Tea Party right. movement. Right. Libertarians at that time, my experience was that we saw her as something of a fraud even oh. then. Um so there was this what what I see now as a precursor to the Trump movement, which is something that calls itself conservative but is fundamentally populist and nationalist was slightly different yeah. to the brand of libertarianism that I subscribe to, which was very much like a Cato Institute thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if you're familiar with David Bowes, the, these are these are guys who are very sort of would be seen as socially tolerant Washington types. So I, I want to be uh, I want to pause here for a second because I want to be very specific about I, I remember it pretty clearly when Sarah Palin came on the scene. Um, so it, it's 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 easy to make fun of her, you know, um, especially <laughs> in, in yes. the rearview mirror. But I remember experiencing it at the time and and I'm a, still to this day a big John McCain fan. I was really hoping he'd pick Lieberman. That would have been, I mean, that would have really shaken things up. Uh, yeah. But I was he, at the two, I was at the time as well, by the way. Yeah. I'd wanted Lieb him to pick Lieberman. Yeah. Um, and then when they announced Sarah Palin, I heard about her as, you know, the Alaska governor who bucked her own party. That was basically the log line. And I'm like, okay, I'm all ears. And literally, Maybe it wasn't 10 seconds, but definitely within 30 seconds, I I knew it was I knew it was bullshit. And and but specifically what it was, I began to get clarity on what my real one of my real top issues, which wasn't an issue per se, um, but it was a way of engaging, a way of doing politics by mischaracterizing your political adversaries' positions. Um, generalizing entire groups of people based on those mischaracterizations and injecting a certain level of, frankly, hatefulness um, for that huge circle of people. Now, fast forward 10, uh, 10 12 years, like that's, that's right in the middle. That's like the primary, <laughs> um, you know, it's not just a sim symptom. It, it is the disease um, that's infecting us all right now, you know? So yeah, it was literally about 30 seconds and I was hearing her talk about, it's a whole lingo. 
it's when I started picking up on not the Democratic Party, but the Democrat Party, you know. Just, oh, yeah. Definitely. You know, just like just all kinds of stuff. So anyway. Um, Although, I, interestingly, George George W. Bush was guilty of, of that even four years prior. Like if you go back and you watch some of the debates between him and John Kerry in 2004, you will hear him repeatedly call them the Democrat Party, yeah. which is, you know, it's funny because George W. Bush today – with with the Trump presidency beginning to kind of go into the rearview mirror, he looks like a model of sort of national dignity. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. uh, and I'm guilty of buying into it too. Now, part of it is that you know I, I trump trumpet this word, this uh, turn of phrase all the time. It comes from I think the foreword of Barack Obama's Audacity of, of Hope book. I'm a prisoner of my own biography. Mm. Right. So I, I am, I grew up a conservative Republican. I grew up rooting for George W. Bush when I was a young teenager. So I can't unexperience the things I've experienced. I can now look back intellectually with the benefit of hindsight and the, and, you know, all the things that have occurred in in my life since and see the damage that his presidency did to both the United States and to the the planet. But I can't bring myself to hate him (laughs) or to even strongly dislike him as a human being. The difference from my point of view between George W. Bush on the one side and Sarah Palin and Trump is that George W. Bush was an ignorant man when it came to history and understanding the complexities of international relationships, but he was never proud of being ignorant. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think he was genuinely curious. He was a yeah. avid reader, you know. So he, he was, was an avid reader. Yeah, that's the. But but Sarah, Sarah Palin and Donald Trump have elevated ignorance into a national value, as if it's a virtue. As if it's a yeah. virtue, and as if people who care about history were elitists are of the cultural elite. Yeah, and they're the enemy. Yeah. So this I, is I no this is literally. Yeah, this is literally the Colbert Report come to life. I'm I'm a I'm a massive Stephen Colbert oh, yeah. fan yeah. fanboy. Uh, he's he's obviously like a very talented and funny comedian, but actually I find him to be one of the most deep and reflective and insightful comment commentators of yeah. sort of contemporary events that we have in America. Yeah. Um, and if you spend any meaningful amount of time watching serious interviews that he's done, I, I think that that's, that's borne out. But w- after he left the Colbert Report and kind of came out uh, it to be his own, his own person rather than the character that he played, when asked about that, he used to, he used to call – there was a turn of phrase for this, which was high-status idiot. And I think that that is exactly what the Trump-Palin – movement is, is a group of high status idiots. So the, uh, when, when asked about this, I, I always split people into to kind of three main intellectual groups. There's people who know a lot about something. I have a lot of respect for people like that. Anyone who's well-educated, who is taking the time to study any topic in great detail, whether it's something really like academic or lofty or something as simple as I don't know how to do some kind of a art or craft well, right? Like I, I have a lot of respect for anyone who takes the time and commits the, the, the time and the passion to learn something. And then there's people who don't know a lot about something, but they know that they don't know. And they're comfortable with that. I've had 
conversations with friends who say about maybe some subject that interests me, like, you know, actually I don't feel comfortable commenting because I, I don't actually know, but I'm interested to learn. And I've got a lot of respect for people like that too. And then there's the third category of people who don't know a lot and don't give a shit. And they just want to sort of vomit up their views very loudly all over you in an unforgiving way. And that is basically what being a high, high status idiot is. I think you're, so I guess Ronnie George W. Bush is not a high status idiot, but Donald Trump is the greatest high status idiot in the history of American politics. So you just gave a teaser of an upcoming episode we have with my brother. We're going to do this with my brother and it's called, uh, it's going to be called politics is proctology. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to give away. My brother has a very work, well worked out uh, scientific theory uh, that he's tested over probably thousands, certainly hundreds, if not thousands of people now. Um, I'm not going to give it away. I'll let Eddie tell it, but uh, I'll just leave it, leave it at that. Politics I, of I proctology. Want, I want credit for the politics of proctology. Wait, you want to you want to steal <laughs> it from was, me now? That was, <laughs> that, that was my contribution. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to be doing that in a couple of weeks. So all right, he is a political proctologist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so 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 Harrison, we're kind of getting away yeah. from theology. Um, yeah. H- how did how did your journey from being um, a right-wing conservative uh, populist to becoming the Maoist that you are now. <laughs> How does that relate to your religious journey? They kind of happened at the same time. They kind of happened at the same time. So first of all, like from my experience was not, when you guys met me, you may have seen me as a right-wing loon which would have been fair like i think like in hindsight if i met someone that was like me at the time that would have been a perfectly fair designation but you have to understand as a libertarian i did not see myself as either right or left you know i really saw i was virulently anti-war for example i didn't believe in any nation building so like i didn't want america intervening in any foreign conflicts basically i was ridiculously pro by at this point pro-choice pro-same-sex marriage you know whatever whatever else and so i didn't see myself as right wing and if you could, could imagine american politics is sort of the three legs of the still the social like the foreign policy defense stuff and then the, the fiscal two of the three legs i identified more with the democratic party than the republican party and then I graduated college at basically like, you know, the height of the aftermath of the, the Great Recession. End of 2010, unemployment was something like 15% in California. I got a job right away, but it was a contract position and it lasted four months. And then I was out of a job again. And I very stubbornly, as a matter of principle, this is unbelievably foolish, but as a matter of political principle, I basically used up all of my savings to cover my bills instead of seek unemployment insurance. Wow. And then I found myself down to the wire and sort of, you know, in a somewhat existential situation. And I, I sort of bit the bullet and filed for unemployment. I started receiving unemployment checks and an incredible thing happened. 
which was that it didn't make me lazy. It didn't make me uninterested in finding work. I was still desperate to find a job and to experience the dignity of work, you know, and the narrative that I'd built up in my head about the safety net was challenged by an experience that I was living through. Yeah. And I sort of really, it hit me deeply and I started researching, you know, for example, like I remember talking about this with my mom a few years ago, my mom's gone through uh, her own political evolution, but there was a period a few years ago where I was chatting with her and I said, you know, what are your top three political issues? I don't mean to speak ill of my mom. She's an incredible lady. And she's, I'm very proud that she's joined the right side of the uh, political <laughs> aisle as far as I'm concerned. But, um, at the time, one of, one of her top animating political issues, one of my uncle's top animating political issues was the, um, sort of welfare fraud and abuse. Right. And, I started researching this back when I was unemployed. This was back in 2011. And when you actually dig into the data, it's basically infinitesimal. You know, it's like really, it's really minor and it's prosecuted as well. We have government agencies that chase down welfare fraud and abuse, but it's a really small part of the, the pie. And I actually did it with my mom. I kind of like said, okay, like let's, how much do you and dad pay in taxes? And let's like look at the federal, federal budget and like split your tax dollars and apportion it, you know, um, equally with like the way that the federal budget is apportioned. And this is the percentage that goes to social security and Medicare. And uh, this is the percentage of that, which is, you know, deemed to be fraud and abuse that, and basically out of the many, 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 many thousands of dollars that my folks pay in tax, we were talking about maybe like, I don't know, a hundred bucks a year or something that would have been ill spent. And it's like, is, is that a hundred bucks too many? Yeah, of course it is. Should that be your second animating political issue? (laughs) You know what I mean? And it was, and it was a, a reflection to me of how successful the right-wing propaganda machine has been in shaping the views of, of its listeners and its viewers. And that is basically my experience of unemployment is what it didn't change me overnight, but what it did is it started me on the path to rethinking a lot of the quite frankly, really ugly and disgusting presuppositions that I held about the, the other, if I could use that as a catch-all phrase for basically anyone who wasn't whatever, white, white, middle-class, hardworking, you know, I mean, even like those kind of designations, working, working class, like hard, hardworking people. Well, so what are, are other groups like not hardworking? Like what's the implication here? There's so much bigotry that is, that forms the subtext for a lot of the language that the right uses. So anyways, at the same time, Ronnie, um, I was going through problems in my first marriage, um, which, which sadly ended in divorce. And the, the, those, those problems, you know, manifested over a couple of years. What was really difficult was how unable I felt to ask questions and to talk about those problems in the culture of the church that I was a part of. And it made me really angry. And it made me really bitter. I felt 
imprisoned by God. You know, I felt like that this institution of marriage, which God supposedly had ordained for humans as like one of the ultimate sacraments, was locking me into a life that didn't feel right for me and that God, you know, presumably like didn't care. And to the extent that I was able to talk to some close friends about it, the the general response I would receive was something like, pray, pray your way through the problem, you know, like it's going to get better. Just pray your way through the problem. And, um, I can't really recap it succinctly, but the bottom line is that that feeling of imprisonment caught, forced me to question a lot of the things that I believed. So in other the, words, when, when you needed the church or the most, the most yeah. it failed yeah. you the most. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And, um, it's, it's a, <laughs> when I was, um, going through kind of the very beginnings of the divorce and also going through sort of this, you know, theological awakening or whatever, spiritual sort of awakening. I sat down with my best friend, the, the guy that had been the best man at my wedding outside of a Starbucks in, in Santa Clarita. And he said, you basically have two options, pal. And, you know, he didn't say this with any like animus. It was, it was, I'm just, my view now is that it was misguided, but obviously there was love there, but he basically was like, look, you have two choices. You can, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, of course, you can basically like bow, bow down and acknowledge Christ as your savior and submit to his will, even if it's painful for you, or you can walk away from the church and risk your eternal salvation <laughs> and, and approach Christ from a position of obstinance and, and opposition. Those are the two choices. And at the time I was sort of questioning a lot, didn't really have a lot of answers. And I was like, I don't feel ready to do either. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make a choice between those two. And I, at the time it, it, it didn't feel like I was given a third door. So I took the second door, which was to leave. And, um, I eventually found my way back to a life of faith, a different life of faith than the one that I grew up with, but it was, it was in spite of like, I'm convinced if I didn't have other people in my life, whispering in my ear and introducing me to new ideas, I would have just left a life of faith forever. And it would have been because of the very sort of evangelical Calvinists that supposedly wanted me in the fold going to heaven when I died. You know what I'm saying? So they really don't do a great job. I think generally of selling the, a positive vision of what a, a life of faith in Christ can look like. I, I do think that a lot of issues that arise like real life issues come down to a problem of sin. You know, I, I've been in the middle of a lot of those you know, well, you know, the issue is sin. Um, and frankly, it's just not sufficient. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, and e even just looking at the first, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're leaving out a lot of those ingredients, you know, um, in, in dealing, in dealing with real life issues. And the, the answer always comes down to, well, you're in sin. So either you repent from that sin or you're going to hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I don't even, you know, part 
for me at that, at that time, I was having questions about the existence of God, right? So the specificity of religious dogma, like, like what's the nature of like, who's Jesus? It's not going to be particularly impactful for me if I'm having fundamental questions about like the origins of the universe. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I remember having conversations about that. And the, the answers that I received were basically like that Jesus would speak through all of that. So rather than get hung up on sort of foundational questions, like if I could figure it out with the Christ as presented in the gospels, it would have the sort of the, the counter effect of like addressing the other problems. Yeah. Uh, but that was not, that was not, in hindsight, I, I understand the point that some of my friends were making, but that wasn't my experience. It wasn't. I, I, you know, there, I remember watching a debate with Chris Hitchens oh. and I can't remember who the, the, the faith person was. I shared yeah. a couple with you. There, there was a couple with John Lennox. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Lennox is cool. I saw him speak in London a few years ago. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, that's one of the benefits of living in the UK. There's a lot of like really bright, you know, religious sort of speakers and comment commentators who, uh, I've gotten the chance to meet and talk to here. I could break in for a second. Yeah, Um, sure. As you were talking, um, one of the issues I have with fundamentalist religion now, I'm, I've become a very observant Jew over the years, um, but I have a big problem with fundament, fundamentalism across all religious spectrums. And that is that fundamentalists seem to think that they know what God wants in every instance. And they co-opt what should be God's issue. Um, Am I going to be saved? That's not my issue. It's not your issue. It's not my rabbi's issue. That issue belongs to God. Fundamentalists would have you think differently. They would have you think that they could tell you what's going to save you and what's going to damn you. I think, yeah. I mean, I think the response on the part of the fundamentalist would be, yeah, you're right, Ronnie. It is God, God's issue. The thing is God has told us what the key is and our job is to be the messenger, you know? So it's not that, yeah. But as a Jew, you know, my response is, well, well, you Christians got the Bible wrong. So I I need to jump in here. So to be fair, and I should have said this when I was talking about the sin issue, a comment before, not all churches are that way. Certainly not all denominations are that way, you know, and it's not to say that, um, you know, the church that we go to now, Knox Presbyterian, is any less committed to the authority of scripture uh, or even orthodox in their commitment to, you know, uh, Jesus Christ as Messiah and savior, you know? So, but I think that there are some churches and some teaching, maybe I just don't understand, like you mentioned Calvinists, maybe I just haven't studied all of the huge movements that have, that have occurred enough to understand that, yeah, there's still these threads uh, that that are descendants of of Calvin that, um, as I would look at it, are much more categorical in in basically um, everything, every way that they interpret the Bible, every way that they interpret the expression of their um, of their faith. So, 
but I, I don't think that defines all of Christianity. Oh, it definitely doesn't. And my, my own faith in humanity yeah. <laughs> has been strengthened, quite frankly, by leaving the United States on, on this particular score, mm. uh, because my experience of cr Christianity in the UK has been on the whole, if you set aside the, the experience at the charismatic church. Um, I mean, even then, even then that was, you know, as I've sort of alluded to earlier, that was really hard for me for some reasons, right? Like, so like watching people have these like physical experiences and manifestations of the spirit was challenging on some levels, but even those friends of mine were so genuinely filled with joy, the joy of living and being alive and sharing their sense of hope out of like a wellspring of, yeah, uh, of, of positivity. There was no, there were, there were no scary conversations about the fate of your soul. You know, mm. like the emphasis, the emphasis was just placed along a different part of the Christian spectrum. And they were the like religious conservatives of the UK. Those, those friends represent, I think maybe the more conservative end of the, the various expressions of Christianity that I've experienced here in the UK. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat shaped by, you know, I, li I lived in London. I lived in a fairly working class somewhat deprived neighborhood in London, but most of the folks that I went to church with when I went to church in London were labor, labor voters, mm. you know, or, or Lib Dem voters. They, they veered to the left of the political spectrum and they, for them, their faith, you know, mirrored or sort of married up well with center left politics rather than center right politics. And, um, there was just, there's just much more of an emphasis here on, I don't know, supporting your local community, uh, having an impact, like trying to be the light of Christ, like in your community and that, that sort of thing. Um, trying to like build the kingdom, so to speak here, rather than worry about, you know, what Richard Rohr would call an evacuation plan to get us out of this planet, which is, which God sees as garbage Yeah. <laughs> to, to dump and get rid of, you know what I'm saying? Um, so you're right. Corey, like uh, the type of the expressions of Christianity we're talking about, you know, that I may have experienced a decade ago, that we, the context in which we met is one expression of Christian faith. And it's a very loud expression oh, yeah. of Christian faith in the United States in particular, yeah. but it is by far not the only strain. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast this morning, Charlie Sykes podcast, which I love. It's called The Bulwark. And I forget the name of the guest, but she was actually part of the Trump administration and then left. I forget how long she was part of the administration, but, you know, she found herself always looking around the table for the true believers, you know, those who are, you know, charismatically um, Trump worshipers, for lack of a better description. And she, but she's, worshipers. What? Idol worshipers. Yeah, idol worship. I, yeah. Idol worshipers. So she's a har pretty hardcore Christian. She was she was bringing literally chapter and verse into it um, because she was talking about false prophets. That that part of her study was, you know, part of what she was talking about was a lot of these, you know, supposed Christian leaders 
that predicted Trump's landslide victory and are still predicting whatever. And, you know, so there's at least there's dozens of passages that talk about false prophets, both in Hebrew Bible and New Testament. So if we did a simple study on that, that would that would help us. What she posited was interesting. It was something that I've been brewing on for a while and that there is a religion. A lot of these folks are calling themselves Christians and even evangelicals, but it's something that's distinct from a real scripturally based Christianity as, as we would know it. Now she didn't tease it. I, I hadn't listened to the whole episode, so she hasn't teased it out completely, but I, I see a lot of those, I see a lot of those signs where it's like, you know, for, first of all, to uphold, like uplift a character like Trump, who's such the very opposite of biblical virtues, you, you couldn't have picked a character that was more the opposite in terms of those virtues um, or, or some of the values, you know, celebrating child separation policy, you know, certain things that are just so contrary to scripture, you just can't get around it. And I'm not going to sit here and say that all like democratic policies are all scripturally sound, um, but, but that the, the problem there isn't saying our party is the party of God. The problem there is starting with a political figure like Trump or starting with a political policy and then trying to jam scripture into it. That's always the problem. And I don't think that's Christianity. Am I going too far with that? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think like for me, it raises another interesting question of why, why scripture, right? So this is that it is so fundamental, I think, to Christian uh, to American understandings of Christian expression, the, the, the primacy of scripture. And I'm, I'm not saying that from a place of ignorance. I've, I've been around the block enough times to understand all the arguments for, you know, why a conservative evangelical would argue for, for, for the primacy of, of scripture. But so thinking about, um, you know, you're saying like that sort of the, the attributes of Donald Trump couldn't be further from the, sort of the, the attributes of like what a, a, a decent sort of Christ following person would look like if you read Paul in the New Testament, for example, or whatever. Yeah. There's, there's that great old saying, right? That a, that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And <laughs> I like that. Conser- conservative, that's, that's not my, you know, that's Amy Jill Levine is where I, I think she got it from somebody else. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work no. of Amy Jill, Jill Levine. She is a- Make make it into a bumper sticker and we'll be millionaires. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. A- Amy, you got to see if you can get Amy Jill Levine on your show one of these days. She is- oh, That'd be great. I've, I've emailed with her a few times. I could maybe, I don't know. She is- um. She calls herself a Yankee Jewish feminist, and she is a she's an Orthodox Jew yeah. who is a professor of New Testament studies at Vanderbilt University. Oh, she must know my, um, my friend, uh, Jer- Jared Kellner's um, brother, Saul. I'm sure they're colleagues because Saul is at Vanderbilt. They must be. And yeah. I don't know. I don't think he's teaching New Testament, but uh, they're in a similar field. Uh, it, it is yeah. some, you know, some derivative of religious studies. So I'm sure they're your colleagues. Yes, they they probably would be. Um, And she's 
absolutely fantastic. So anyways, uh, a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And that is never more the case than with American political conservatives and also with American conservative Christians. <laughs> like the way that American conservatives read the Bible is the same way they read the Constitution. There's no, there's no space between the text and our understanding and interpretation of the text. The historical context in which the document was written is irrelevant to understanding what the plain words mean right now. Hmm. We don't have to filter the language through the prism of history. Um, yeah, one, one of the ways... Um, the, difference, yeah. the difference between uh, the Constitution and what Christians call the New Testament is that you're reading it in the language in which it was written, whereas the New Testament is a translation of a translation of a translation. Oh, stop. No, but, no, uh, it is. And it's read by people who have absolutely no understanding of the political um, context of first century Palestine. Yeah, I, 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 I think, but, the, but Ronnie, how is that? What the word Pharisee means? They haven't got a clue. And they can't give you the name of any Pharisee who is not mentioned in the Gospels. <laughs> so I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you on that point. But how is that any different from American conservatives, many American conservatives? I always want to make exceptions from most American conservatives reading the Constitution. They have no concept whatsoever of the historical context in which the constitution was written, mm. you know, uh, yeah. so, so let me give you guys a really minor example. I remember a few years ago, this was back when I was a libertarian as well. Okay. I remember looking up the questions that were asked in the first American census because the constitution calls for the conducting of a census, but it doesn't define how the census is conducted or what questions need to be posed, right? So, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this out of memory now, so there's probably going to be details that I'm screwing up. And in fact, the details aren't relevant to the broader point. If you go back up and you, and you look up the types of questions asked and the groups of people who were asked and the groups of people who were excluded, from the original like American census, which I think I want to say took place in either the 1790s or maybe the first decade of the, the 1800s. You're left, if you're a hardcore libertarian like I was, you're left with a problem, which is that the founders in their own time had to interpret their own document and they extended past the strict bounds of their own text. Do you see what I mean? This cuts to the heart of something that you as an Orthodox Jew, Ronnie, believe very strongly in, which is like the concept of an oral Torah, right? Like uh, this is something that sets, I think, me apart maybe from other, other people who would claim similar faith mantles to myself is that like I, the ways in which I view politics and religion now are similar in that I accept the oral Torah, if I could put it that way. So for me, the, the, 
historical critical context, the textual critical context of a religious text. What kind of genre is this particular book of the Bible that we're reading? When was it written? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What audience were they speaking to? How many textual variants are in the text? Are there any important textual variants that have changed from the original, you know, the original autographs through the transmissions, which we possess through the various different interpretations of the translations that we have in English that may be theological or political in their, in their motivation because they want a specific theological outcome. These are things that all get wrapped up into my reading of scripture. And it doesn't detract or suggest a lack of respect for the scriptures. For me, it's additional respect and a desire to engage with the text. But that additional, those additional layers are seen as a threat by people who want to read the words on the page and say, this is what they mean, and it's locked in for eternity, and there's no amount of sort of social or political or global changes that can happen that will change my understanding of the meaning of this text, which is basically Antonin Scalia's you know, method of constitutional interpretation. And I, I fail to see many distinctions between that attitude and sort of you know, the way we read the Constitution and the way that we read the Bible. That's interesting. I, I do want to address something my dad said, just to yeah. be clear. I, I'm not objecting to everything that you just said, dad, but when you say all we have is a translation of a translation, I that part of what you said, I think is just not just unfair, but just flat out inaccurate. I mean, the New Testament, the, the, the letters that make up the New Testament have more copies of the what uh, Harrison just referred to as the original autographs that are more proximate to their actual writing than any other uh, writings that we have from from that period of literature and and from periods prior to that. So I think it's not to say that everything that we're reading is exactly as it was originally written down by those first century writers but it's not that it's inaccessible to us and it's not to be taken like something that is so far removed from those original writers. The history is available to us. The historical context is available to us to be able to. And the the last thing I want to do is be disrespectful to any religious, authentic religious belief, but we have to be clear about the difference between faith and um, fact. For example, first of all, I was referring mostly to the Hebrew Bible, you know, which is American Christians read what they call the Old Testament in a language that's a translation of a translation of a translation. And when we got into a conversation about abortion, for example, and I refer to the verse that's most often referenced uh, in the Old Testament that justifies anti-abortion feelings. And let me say I'm, I'm against abortion, but that's another issue. Um, the Christian pastor who's well known that we interviewed last week completely mistranslated the meaning of the verse in the original Hebrew. Fair enough, I, but I, I thought it was worth bringing bringing that up because I'm glad, I'm glad you clarified because yeah, the, the, the letters that 
um, at the, the gospels that make up the New Testament, there's st- and whether you whether you like uh, somebody like Josh McDowell who did extensive studies on that and shared it through evidence that demands a verdict, or you prefer a more rigorous academic historian like N.T. Wright, we have um, respected scholars, uh, some of whom are Christian and some of whom are not. Let me um, give you two examples, two specific concrete examples. Um, the Hebrew Bible is very clear. If someone kills a fetus in the, accidentally in the course of a fight between two men and a pregnant woman stands between them, the punishment is not death. The punishment is a fine. Okay? But Christians don't view it that way. Um, another example, if I were to read an eyewitness account of what happened at Auschwitz that was written by somebody in 2005, I would not approach that with the same confidence as if that person wrote it in 1945. And yet Christians use accounts of Jesus's life that were written 30, 40 years after he died and refer to it as original texts. Yeah, probably translated by a scribe because most of the, if not all of the disciples, did not speak Greek. Mm. Right. They spoke Aramaic. Yeah. Aramaic. Well, Paul certainly spoke Greek. I think, I think you did. I think you bring up fair points. It's fair to say that, you know, depending on the letter or the book, they were written decades. You know, I, I don't think they were written hundreds of years. I, you know, I believe that they were written pretty proximate to most of them were first hand accounts or at least, you know, um, uh, interviewing witnesses who had first hand accounts. So, you know, I think it's fair to say, yeah, these were written down um, at least a couple, three, four, five decades after the events took place. So I, I think that's fair to um, but but to say that it was made up whole cloth, you know, a few no, no, centuries afterward. I would afterward. Not say that. I know, I know, I know. But I, I, okay. So I'm glad you clarified about the translation of the because you're right because uh, the Hebrew Bible was written in ancient Hebrew and then translated to the Septuagint that was then translated into other languages and so on and so forth. So I, I take your point there. Um, seeing as we have about ten minutes left. <laughs> we haven't like I'm still I, I have this outline that's three pages long we haven't gotten past bullet point one <laughs> so. yeah this is this is my fault this is what you as I said you were gonna regret this <laughs> no not, I I so don't regret it that I'm good, gonna good. officially on the air invite you back so that we can get to some of these other bullet good. points but, I I accept I accept great great um so with the time that we have left I'll give Dad and and Harrison, I'll give you the choice of, do we want to continue a a little mini chapter of your evolution, your spiritual and political evolution in your thinking and belief system? Or do we want to try to tackle one of these um, current event oriented issues? Uh, Ronnie, I'm going to defer to you, my friend. What do you want to do? Hey. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> <Like a vault. laughs> 
no, no, don't ask because if, 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 it, if it's my choice, I'm going to ask a question that's going to make Corey very, very angry. <laughs> Are you going to ask, uh, why do you need Jesus? Is that that? Uh... Well, it's the most relevant question to ask two people who are born Jews who now believe in Jesus to a Jew. Mm. Uh, who do to a Jew who read the gospel of the got the, the gospels, not the rest of the New Testament, but the gospels at least three or four times and several commentaries on them by N.T. Wright and respected Christian thinkers and Tommy Givens and all these other people. Um, I come back to the same question. I mean, I get Jesus's message and being inspired by it. I don't get why you had to make him into a God. I, I don't get that at all. And clearly he didn't fulfill the messianic predictions. So why did you have to superimpose that on top of it? I don't get that, mm. which is the question, why Jesus? Why do you yeah. need Jesus? So what am I, am I meant to just sort of put a bow on this ni nicely, you know, wrap it for you in time for Christmas or the last night of Hanukkah. You have exactly, yeah. have exactly five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be, I don't know. This will either be the worst answer that you've ever heard, Ronnie, or it'll be your favorite answer. Why Jesus? My, my honest answer right now on the 16th of December, 2020, which is the time at which we're recording this. My answer is, eh, <laughs> like, nah. you know, it's the most Larry David response. I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether I care to be honest with you. It's not a question that animates me a whole lot at the moment because my view of God, I use the term advisedly, uh, over the last few years, I've become deeply interested in classical theism and in metaphysics. And I'm by no means like an expert. You know, I'm, I'm a lay person, but I'm trying to read as much as I can because I've got fundamental questions about like what it means to exist. How is it that anything exists at all? And what is consciousness? And is consciousness reducible to physical, uh, you know, physical parts, or is there something more sort of fundamental and transcendent? These sorts of questions can be augmented by faith, but they can't be answered through the specificity of, of religious dogma, as far as I'm concerned. And the answers that I've tentatively arrived at about the nature of, you know, what I might call the divine right reality, what some people call God, leave me with such a feeling of peace and security that there, that some of the questions, some of these questions just don't interest me too much anymore. I find beautiful expression in both Judaism and in Christianity, my inherited faith traditions. I don't try to syncretize them anymore there was an experience that I had at the kind of the height of the charismatic sort of, you know, events that occurred for me in 2014 and 15 and 16, when I was working at that, that church, which really caused kind of a, it not only caused a crisis of faith for me, but it also forced me, it, it made me somewhat rebellious. One night after work on a Friday night, I walked out of 
the office and I walked up Exhibition Road with the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A on my right and the Natural History Museum on my left. I walked up Exhibition Road and I turned up by um, Kensington Gardens and I stumbled into a liberal synagogue and said, can, can I come in for a service for Shabbat? And it was one of the most moving, powerful, exper religious, spiritual experiences of my adult life. The, the being exposed to all of that charismatic sort of like the spiritual gifts and the speaking in tongues made me desirous to be with my Jewish family, you know, and I walked in and there was a bunch of old people. I was like by far the youngest fellow there. And it was quite a small gathering. And there was a point fairly early on where we stood up and we sang the Shema and there was an old man next to me in a kippah and he was sort of holding on to his cane for weight to, to support him. And he was just battle scarred. You know what I mean? This guy, this old guy had been through like a lot and he was still faithfully there saying the Shema and it moved me deeply. And I felt an incredible solidarity with my people and a, and a close emotional connection to my grandparents in that moment and an appreciation and a love for what they had sacrificed in both Poland and Belarus and moving to a Jewish community in China and then escaping to come to the United States, all each time escaping some form of persecution or another. And to cut a long story short, I ended up becoming a member of that synagogue and the, the rabbi, when I met him, I knew his special right away. I went in to meet him in his office and he had a new Testament on his desk. It wasn't planned. I didn't tell him who I was. He happened to have a new Testament on his desk. And then he took me for a tour of this museum on the top floor of the synagogue where they have some Czech scrolls that were salvaged out of the ruins of the Nazis in Czechoslovakia. And um, he told me some of these, we, we've loaned them out to other synagogues. And in instances where uh, we can't find a synagogue in a particular community, we'll loan them out to a church. Because if not a synagogue, why not a church? And anyways, a few months later, I ended up basically confessing to this rabbi what my background was and where I'd come from. And I said, I don't know exactly what I believe right now about kind of like the specificity of like, is Jesus God? Like, is he the Jewish Messiah? Where do I land on this or that? What I know is that for me, living a Jewish life without Jesus somewhere in that mix, even if quietly for me feels somewhat void, but not having a Jewish identity makes me feel incomplete too. And I, I, I just want to be a member of this community. I don't care about convincing anyone of what I believe. What I believe doesn't have to factor in. I just want to be in a synagogue. I want to come to Passover Seder's, I want to hang out with other Jews. And he was like, of course, of course you're a full member, you know? And it was very much what you said, Corey, at the top of the, the program about how, like, if you want to light the Hanukkah candles and you feel comfortable doing so, you can just do it because you're a Jew. That's what you do. It doesn't conflict with it. And that, that's the experience I ended up having. So a few years ago, I stopped feeling the need to syncretize anything because I was like, hey, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Jew. I love Jesus. I don't care about like, whatever. I'm going to figure it out. Like, this is who I am. If you don't like it, pound sand, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm still comfortable with that. And what it took, all it took was the love 
and acceptance of a rabbi who wasn't trying to conform me to some fucking equation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, what, like the questions about Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecies are super interesting. Like we can, we should tackle some of those in the next program. Like I've got, I got loads of thoughts on that, you know, um, both kind of like that might, I don't know, maybe affirm some of Ronnie's points and also uh, challenge some of them too. But ultimately like, we believe, we believe the things we want to believe to some degree. Yeah. All of us are guilty of that, including people who reject faith. I have, I'm absolutely convinced that some of my loveliest atheist friends are passionately committed to their lack of belief because they don't want to surrender some sense of existential control over their lives, or they're afraid of maybe sort of consequences after death, or there's an experience that happened in their life that made them feel like a, a loving God is not possible to, that, that they exist. Right. Like we're all committed to certain beliefs. And for me, I find beauty and meaning in the faith traditions that I inherited and both of them affirm what are like, for me, the, the biggest priority beliefs that I hold, which are beliefs about the divine reality that some of us call God, which exists. Well, that God doesn't, God doesn't exist in, in a very real sense because to exist implies certain ontological particulars about like what, who confers existence upon what, and, you know, are things that exist metaphysically contingent on other things to receive their being. So in a very real sense, God is the source of existence and it, and just is. We're going to be having uh, Samir Yadav on the program in about a month and a half. And he Lovely. covers some of this. His, um, one of his PhDs was on this very issue of, you know, the existence of God, how we experience the existence of God, and whether our experience of, of God's presence, um, it, it, we are, it, it's contingent upon our ability to know things, um, you know, and, and he mixes all of these. I'm just starting to read some of his work. So, um, but it, he very much deals with exactly what you're talking about. So we'll, uh, we'll tackle that. But um, yeah, so I guess like Ronnie, the, bo the bottom line is like, we can talk another time about what, why Jesus for me. But, you know, if Jesus is the universal sort of savior that I suspect he is in quietness of my heart, then you're okay. So do, so you do you pal, like, you know, <laughs> you do, you do you, cause Jesus is going to cover you. Like you're fine. Like, you know, and you're, you're clearly like a man who's committed to understanding truth, seeking out the will of God and trying to pattern the conduct of your life after the teachings that Jesus taught. So whatever, because like we'll talk Jewish teachings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But they're also human teachings. Like that's the thing They're They're beyond tribe. And that's okay. So yeah. whatever. That's where I'm at right now. Cool. This has, been this has been great. I've really enjoyed this. Me too. We're definitely going to have to pick it up. So we'll uh, we'll follow up after this. We'll figure out a time. Um, <laughs> I am going to try to put this up tonight, by the way. So I got I got some work Good. to do. But, uh, I'm yeah. into it. I'm into it. It's great Thanks, to hang guys. out it's with you, man. Yeah, I really miss you guys. We really next when when this COVID business is over and I'm in LA next, we gotta have you know a really long dinner like we used to back <laughs> back in the day and back in the day bark about all this stuff together. Yeah, right on, right on. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks, Pop. Take care. All right, see you guys. Thanks, soon. Bye.
Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.